Um, okay, well, welcome. Thank you. We I'm so have, glad to be here. Oh, my God. Well, we have with us today a very special guest, famous interventionist, internationally famous. We have, she's international, she's a speaker, she's an advocate, she's a mother, she's, I mean, I could go on and on, she's an author, yes, author, um, and in my opinion, the most important thing, a woman in long-term recovery. Um, that came first. That came first. Without it, I don't think we would have the well, rest. You wouldn't be talking to me. So welcome, Candy Finnegan. Thank, thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks for making the long drive all the way from L.A. Well, you know, I think it's really important. I think, I think first of all, I think podcasts are just a wonderful way of communicating with the world at this point, you know. And I think that you get to um, share your experience, strength, and hope, and also... What the hell's going on over here? I mean, you get to have an opinion that a lot of times you don't. So um, I know we're not supposed to have opinions, but you got the wrong girl. <laughs> <laughs> I got your opinions. <laughs> we need opinions. We need yes. opinions. We need, we, listen, I think there's room for opinion. Well, there has to be somebody who's calling them. I mean, you know, um, I don't know. When I heard I couldn't have opinions, if I got sober, I said, well, I think I might be the first one. Loud and proud. Ooh, been loud my whole life, but and, and very proud to be in recovery. It, um, little did I know. Little did you know. Well, you've gotten a big platform, so let's talk about that. So let's talk about your own intervention because you had an intervention before there was even interventions. A word. Um, my intervention was is that I. Um, Married the uh, man of my dreams in college, and then I met his mother. <laughs> and she was six foot one and a social worker and head of the um, welfare division, um, was the divorce bailiff at the court. Was, he grew up in a small town in Ohio, and she was all things to that county. <laughs> so when she said to me, I've noticed your drinking escalating. And I thought, how could she have seen that? It's underneath the kitchen sink, and then it's in the bathroom sink. And why do I lock the doors when I bathe my kids? Because I don't want you seeing me drinking. <laughs> and uh, she said, I'm not threatening you. I'm telling you, if you don't get help, um, I'm going to take the kids back. Now, I'm adopted. So you're not taking my kids away. Mm. And I said, well, you have a son I think you should have a visit with. She's not raising my grandkids. Mm -hmm. And I went, <laughs> and then I heard she belonged to this cult called Al-Anon. <laughs> that was it for me. I knew I was dead. Um, she had a black belt in it. I mean, she wasn't kidding. And um, so I went into treatment. She gave me 60 days because uh -huh. school was out. And I went in day 61, so it was my idea. <laughs> And um, she wouldn't come out and take care of the kids until I went into treatment. And actually, I called Betty Ford at 4 o'clock in the morning and said, could you have Mrs. Ford call me? I need to talk to her. And needless to say, she didn't. And, um, <laughs> but I let her know later that I expected a call from her. And she'd have gone, honey, if I'd have known you called, I'd have called you. But she probably would have. Um, there wasn't a lot of treatment. I mean... 
there was treatment, but not a lot of good treatment. And the reason I had wanted to go to Betty Ford is because she was the only person that I knew who had been intervened on. And her daughter started it. And what year was this? Um, I think she was maybe 82 or 81. Uh -huh. And she went to San Pedro to the Naval um, Hospital down there. Okay. Um, for treatment. And uh, she didn't much like it. I mean, you know, a lot of guys and a lot of them bossing him around. And, you know, I think at that point, as you know so clearly, mm -hmm. she realized that you could get sober anywhere, but the real conditions and the underlying feelings of a, a woman is very different. And she felt like she didn't get to share all of her feelings, because mm -hmm. needless to say, she had kind of a big job as first lady. Oh, uh, yeah. And um, she said, I don't want anybody else to feel the same way I do. And it's forced. Um, and it wasn't that she was forced into recovery because she was a pill addict and alcoholic. It was forced to shut her feelings down. Yeah. And um, she worked really hard. She had the same sponsor for years and years and years. And, and she went to meetings, you know, up until she died, like three days a week. And, I mean, she took it seriously, but she said the beginning of it was horribly uncomfortable. She thought every time she opened her mouth, they were going to report to the general who was going to call her husband. Remember, he was the commander-in-chief. So um, she just said she didn't get a lot accomplished other than... She knew she was there because she had embarrassed her family. Not the country, but her family. And I got to tell you, Gerald had no idea. Gerald Ford had no idea she was in trouble. So would you say that that's a common theme? Because I called you an interventionist, but I would take that even a step further and call you a family interventionist. Would you say that's common? Um. I think it, it, a lot of it really has to do with what part of the country you're in. Yeah. Um, I think we as Californians are much more aware of what's going on. Um, I was born and raised in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was when I got sober in 86, it was like I hadn't projected my alcoholism in Kansas because I would go. My family was very privileged, and I'd control everything mm -hmm. to the best of my ability. Wouldn't embarrass it. I only went to two 12-step meetings the whole time I was there because I didn't want to embarrass my mother mm -hmm. that she hadn't done a good job raising me. Right. And that was her thought. Yep. And um, the last thing she said to me at 94 before she passed away is, do you still belong to AAA? <gasps> oh, yeah, I can identify I with said, that. I said, well... Mm -hmm. Lose one of those A's, and yes, I do. Um, so, you know, it's that uh, no one believed, you know, where I was raised that I was an alcoholic because I, I really wasn't able to be myself. Right. Um, I would had to still be Bob and Jenny's daughter and all the rest of it. So, Which I is think part of alcoholism, <sighs> right? The chameleon? You bet. Mm hmm. Um, and, you know, my mom said, we don't have any of those in our family. And I said, well, your brother died of cirrhosis. Well, that's a liver disease. <laughs> okay, we're not going to go any farther. Right, You're right. embarrassing me. But um, right. um, I think that my father was very proud of me, but he never saw 
he maybe he saw me drink. My dad drank, but very he had um, a double bourbon at five o'clock, and he never touched another drink. Right. And uh, I never saw him. I had saw him have a little sip of champagne at my wedding, but I never saw him drink anything other than Virginia Gentleman bourbon, and that was it. You know, and it was his reward. At the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I drank to match my dress. I mean, I drank whenever <laughs> I could. Um, but Kansas was a dry state, so all that was there was three, two beers. So I did a lot of trips to Missouri and Oklahoma um, to buy booze. So I, I don't believe I started drinking alcoholically till after I had my kids. Yeah, you said it. Because escalated. I was stuck at home. Got it. Never babysat. Didn't know what they were supposed I mean, I just thought they'd come out and start talking and take care of themselves. All right. You know, do you want chicken noodle soup? Yeah. Gerber's baby. I mean, and so much of that stuff just just floored me. I mean, I was going, oh. So um, I had to learn how to mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I my mother was a wonderful mother, but she certainly was not maternal as I wanted to be. Where Mike's mother was very maternal. So we just you know started in on this journey. Do I think I knew an alcoholic? My mother claimed that she had never known an alcoholic, and I got to tell you, there were a lot of them there, mm-hmm. that old country club alcoholism. And um, so, you know, and then I've gone to New York, and it's, you know, it's so much more elegant to be a drunk there, you know, mm-hmm. in the bars and the suit and the briefcase. It's so much more of a formal alcoholic situation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that people don't keep their eyes on how you drink. They keep their eyes on your behavior, and you can fool people for a long time. True, and I, and I think alcohol is so sneaky, and it is, and it's so personal, and um, there's a misconception of what an alcoholic actually is. Oh, mm-hmm. I wasn't sitting at bars falling off and mm-hmm. going running around on my husband, and I mean, it didn't, it, and that's why I couldn't conceive of somebody calling me an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Don't you know what that looks like? Right. And of course, alcohol and drugs were a big part of the romance of my husband being a musician. It was well accepted. And it was, you were like not invited if you didn't participate because you're going to tattle, you know. It was a code of silence. Like the only way you ever got caught is if you overdosed. Oh, right. It was, I mean, record companies put in a drug allowance in the 70s. Like, you have $100,000 out of your $300,000 record budget to make yourself comfortable. Wow. Party. uh, Well, but um, that was another one of the gifts for you to sign with this label. Right. And, uh, I mean, I had never really seen drugs. Um, I got married in 69 and moved out to Marin County in February of 1970. And I was like in another planet. I'd never seen people hitchhike unless their tractor broke down. (laughs) And people are twirling around and taking acid. And I had no idea what astrological sign I was. And then I was told that my husband and I had the same sign. We're probably going to have to get divorced now. I mean, (laughs) I, I just thought, I don't... And my husband would go out on tour, and I'd fly back to Kansas. I have never been so uncomfortable in my life. 
No, did you have kids at this point? No, yet? no, no, no. no I'm yet. like 23 years old. Okay. Uh -huh. And he's 25. And uh -huh. he's starting in on his musical career. Just gave up a huge scholarship at Kansas University Basketball. Uh -huh. And I thought he was going to be a Celtic and an attorney. I don't know what went wrong. He got mono and that was it. You know, I'm going to be a musician now. And um, I married the man, not the job. I mean, I didn't know. N I lived next door to Janice Joplin. I had no idea who she was. And I kept saying to my husband, you know, she needs to brush her hair. <laughs> and he'd go, just ignore her, Kathy. And I'd go, well, she makes me so nervous. <laughs> and as she did, and I had no idea who she was. Um, I was just really um, not in any of, I mean, I, I was not a hippie. Uh -huh. um, I, you know, somebody would refer to me as Mike's old lady, and I'd go, I'm sorry, but I'm two years younger than he is. I'm not old years old. <laughs> I didn't get any other concept for a long time. Right. He played with a lot of really, really famous people, and I thought, did they name the Grateful Dead that because they were grateful they weren't dead? <laughs> or, I mean, I just, you know, I'm telling you. I met these guys from Moby Grape, and I thought, uh -huh. Well, that, I mean, I just thought they were all a little odd. <laughs> and a lot, and then the, the pot thing hadn't even really hit Kansas. It took a long time. Wichita, Kansas is right square in the middle of the country, right. even amount of miles to New York as to Los Angeles. So it took a long time. Some stuff snuck in there, but it was nothing. I mean, I still changed my purse to match my shoes, and... These people didn't have any shoes, and I was just like, oh, I, I'm not comfortable here. And I mean, I didn't know how to keep house very well. I certainly didn't know how to cook, and I just thought, I've really made a mistake here, folks. I need to go home. Um, of course, love kept me entwined, but it's, um, I, you know, I was fascinated with these girls that would go to every single concert and and I just, I mean, I didn't, a groupie, I just thought, don't you have anything better to do? <laughs> and they went, no. So I'd just never been around people that weren't overachievers and, and trying to get an education and all the rest of it. And I didn't get the mentality. I really didn't. And um, I felt so less than there. And I never got high with any of them because I was, you know, I, I always thought they were going to dose me with LSD or something so I'd go twirling with them. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I was just really out of my whole... Out of your element. Oh, I mean, and I just thought, I mean, I felt sorry for them that they hadn't had, like, manners. And um, I don't know. I, it was uh, Easter Sunday in 1970, and I called my mother from a payphone at the Trident, which is a beautiful, beautiful restaurant in Sausalito. And I said, these girls don't have brassieres on, and I, they're serving me lunch, and I'm, I'm going to have to leave. I mean, you know, my husband was playing there for Easter, and my mother went, oh, my God. I mean, I'm just horrified. You know, and it's like, I thought, as I look back on that, I thought, where, where, where did I come from? Oh, you know, you that sing. I can't eat lunch at a place. With the gals without bras. It and was brassiers. Brassiers, I'm sorry. Brassiers. Because they all had like kind of organ, you know, kind of organza blouses. You could see through them. I was so horrified. I said to my husband, is this a strip club? <laughs> that looks back, by the way. Yeah. That looks back. Well, I under, and I understand it now, <laughs> but at, at the time, I mean, you know, I just come from 
you know, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Boy, this came I came from the country club at Can- yeah, Kansas. Yeah, boy, I use that a lot. Um, but, you know, it's like you grow into your own self. Yes. And um, I think that had a lot to do with it, the exasperation of me not fitting in. Um, I didn't ever want to try what they tried. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was so uncomfortable, it was easier for me to leave. Because I just, um, I didn't have that kind of mentality, you know? And uh, it wasn't that I even wanted it. I didn't know how to get it, you know? I, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I could hang out with these people because they didn't have the same moral compass I did either. So it was like a real, real struggle. And of course, you know, Kansas didn't have a lot of vineyards. I spent a lot of time in Napa at that first year, <laughs> tasting wines for free. Um, but I wouldn't change anything. I mean, because it certainly got me where I am today. And um, I really had so much pressure on myself to not be judgmental, but I didn't know what else to do. You know, lecture them. Please, do you know how to spell that? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, do you know what fork to use? I mean, it's like, oh, my God. So I became very sad at the condition that I was being put in by my husband because of his business that I had no experience in life and I'd traveled all over the world and you know had everything in every color and and I just all of a sudden I was don't you know who I am and no you don't and you don't care you know because I come from a highly privileged high society family and it's like none of that mattered there. And I'd never been around anybody that it didn't matter. And I just thought, get me out of here. So what? So did you? Did you pack up and go home? I always went home. When he went on the road. So when he was on the road, you would go home? I, I would stay a day. Mm-hmm. I'd never spent one night by myself in my life. Okay. I mean, I never babysat. I mean, I'd never been home alone. Okay. And so I would, uh, I'd take him to the airport mm-hmm. and then park the car and get my suitcase out and fly home. Okay. And then usually I would come home maybe a day or two before him, change the sheets, pick up the car, change the sheets. But there was a long distance between San Francisco International and Marin County was over the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. It's a long drive. Yep. And... Um, then go pick him up and act like, you know, everything's fine. It's like, he was really patient with me. I mean, he was he was out of his element from coming to be a jock. And um, he'd had some success with, a, with his own band out of Wichita. He'd played with Jimi Hendrix. And, of course, I had no idea who that was. <laughs> Just uh, nothing could impress me, let me put it that way. And so, you know, but he was fighting for his, he was very, very clean cut, didn't own a pair of jeans, and now all of a sudden he's got a big afro and he's wearing sunglasses all the time, and I'm sure smoking a lot of weed that I didn't like that either. I didn't like the smell, so, you know, it's like I, there was something wrong with everything. And um, I could just get on a plane and go back and be comfortable, you know. Um, I never went to gigs. I maybe once. Um, I'd probably been to 100 gigs in 50 years I was married. 
I said, you know, I've seen the show, thanks. I don't need to go see it again. <laughs> so it, it's a very, I'm a very strange person to have been put in this situation. It worked for us. We were both from the Midwest. He was from a small town in Ohio. And both of our parents were, st you know, stayed together. We didn't come from divorced families. And both of us were raised Catholic. I mean, there were all these very things that were very simpatico that made no difference now. Well, it sounds like y'all kept each other grounded. Well, we, and then, you know, I would say to him, why are you, why did you lose your keys? Why aren't they in the car? He'd go, because the car will be stolen, Candy. And I went, oh, <laughs> well, well my, that's just where you leave them, or under the floorboard, right. I mean, something. Right. So it was, um, it was a real struggle. Musically, he was so um, unusual. He's very blues oriented, and he's a six foot seven white guy, you know. And they, you know, that's all that white blues and, and blue eyed, you know, mm -hmm. soul and all that. And I didn't, I was, I mean, I knew he was talented, but I didn't have any idea how talented he was because I didn't have anything to compare it to it. Maybe Elvis. Maybe Elvis. What is your music? Um, I was not a musical person. I mean, I went to, we had an apartment in New York, and I saw Broadway shows and all uh -huh, that. Uh -huh. I, you know, I liked Dolly Parton. She was cute, but she was a little bit older than me and on TV. <laughs> but I am, um, well, you know, to this day, Wichita, Kansas is one of the few places that doesn't have a lot of live concerts. Um, it's not a music community. I mean, I know people large acts who were supposed to go in there and they didn't sell enough tickets and canceled. Mm -hmm. Mike always sold out anything because he was the hometown boy made right. good, but it's, um, it's, it, it's uh, really highly money motivated. Had more millionaires under the age of 35 in Wichita, Kansas than any place else. Well, what was the industry that brought people there? Well, Pizza Hut started there. Pizza Hut, um, okay. Parts of Pep. PepsiCo, but Boeing, Beach, Cessna, and Lear were all there. Uh, and they all lived in a very small community that I grew up in, and it's a huge, huge oil community in my parents' family. Uh, my family it. was in the oil business. Got it. So, uh -huh. um, like Oklahoma, that triangle, Houston, Tulsa, Wichita, that was that, the you know, that triangle. oil triangle. Okay, got and it. And so, I mean, the exciting thing for me was seeing a well come in, and they were going, oh, what? <laughs> I said, well, okay. I smell well. money. <laughs> um, but it was two very different upbringings. And um, I think it worked because we wanted a divorce at different times. <laughs> That's, you know, what really chapped me didn't really bother him. <laughs> you know, so it was like I was going, okay, I'm not going to get divorced. And um, several times I, you know, really considered it, but it was easier to get drunk and then get divorced, so I'd just do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, life, I'd have to say, when I look back, I'm, I'm 73 years old, and when I look back on my life, I think, damn, you know, what a life. What a life. You've had quite the life. And I'm telling you, you are one busy woman. You are busy. You well, are you know, I have ADHD, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that at the time, and I, there was no medication for me, so, well, so I just multitask. Well, you found a career and a passion, so you got sober, 
You had an intervention. Your mother-in-law. One, one woman. One woman. Sitting in my living room going, uh-uh. Uh-uh, this ain't happening, not on my watch. So you did it. And my husband got sober seven weeks later. And I was going to ask you, and your husband got sober. Yeah, because I had to tell him that I had to divorce him. I didn't feel that way, but I was told that's what I had to say. So can't be married to it. But he never had a blackout in his life. He, because he was an Irishman and this big, he wasn't a big stature man. He could drink a fifth of Jack Daniels and 36 beers and never had a blackout. Never had a blackout in his life. And my life was constantly flashing in front of my eyes, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, But he came from an alcoholic family, too, which I didn't have any reference for. And, um, you know, he was, a, he was a great drunk. He didn't drive for 14 years because he didn't want to get a DUI. So he's a really smart drunk. There aren't many of them. There aren't. But, of course, I had to drive him everywhere and drop him off. But, you know, it's... Um, it's it, it, I just knew when I got sober, I couldn't sit at home and watch soap operas. I never had. And it just, you know, I'm a room mother always and all that overachieving, but I just thought I gotta do something. I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I didn't know there was a recovery field. Well, I read that your neighbor. Across the street neighbor. Across the street. Who I'm going to see tonight. I haven't seen her in a long time. So your across the street neighbor said, let's go back to school. She was an actress uh-huh. and had had some success uh-huh. in a lot of scary horror movies. She was the queen of be scary movies. Uh-huh. And she had graduated top of her class from Long Beach, and she craved an education. And sounds like you did, too. And no, I'd taken five years to get out of college, and I just was hoping no one ever saw my grade point average. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, over my dad's dead body was I not going to graduate. And um, so she said, let's go to UCLA and be drug and alcohol counselors. We are literally one month and three days apart recovery-wise. I'm in May and she's in June. And so I went, what? I didn't even know what it was. Mm -hmm. She said, it's like a drug and alcohol counselor. Now, she just walked into AA. She came from an alcoholic mom and a family. And I thought, well, let's go have sushi and go to the movie and, and you know, make believe we're going to KDEX school. She said, it's two years long. And I thought, God, that's a lot of sushi, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of movies. How am I going to do it? And I said, well, I'll go and see. And at the time, it was very restricted. You had to have a year of sobriety. If you relapsed, you had to report it. And they... You could come back, but I mean, and I don't know who was the police in that department, but it was really intense. It was like from seven o'clock until 10 o'clock twice a week and mm-hmm. half days on Saturday. And it was about the only way I guess I could leave my kids because I, I, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't trust a lot of people with my children. So I, uh, I started in and I made A's and I was, I thought, how am I making A's? And she goes, you know the subject. <laughs> yeah, I do. So you had leverage. Uh, yeah, there, I there had begins... many interventions with just rock bands. So there's the beginning of your budding career. Yeah.
So map started. Map and, started, uh, and there begins your career. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, I knew that they would go to treatment just to shut me up. That's what I, you know, I just walk in there, guns blazing. Buddy, you're running your life, and what about your poor wife? And you're, you know, aren't you talented? Don't you? I mean, I just never went. Ooh. And they go, okay, 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 I'll go. But um, I didn't have any idea. I was leaving this puddle when I walked out the door. I was nice and communicated with the wife and told the kids I was sorry their dad was an asshole. But the truth of it was is that my aim was to get this guy into treatment so he could have a life and usually a big career. And I mean, you know, the good thing about me is I intervened on all these people that were huge rock stars. I had no idea who they were. And I'd go, where'd you get those gold records? Um, so, but it was honest. I mean, it was, certainly was. And so I just thought, you know, I gotta be missing something here. I mean, there weren't, there were three women interventionists. One of them was Joan Toll, who now lives in Crawford, Colorado. And, she would do this kind of systemic thing, which just, I didn't have time for that. And one of them was Pat Kelly from Orange oh, County. And she was Pat kind Kelly. of a um, soft-spoken, wonderful, she wasn't an addict herself. And she was, um, I had a religious side to her. And um, I, you know, I loved her. She was, but I just thought, I'm in the crisis intervention business, honey. I got to go in there. And. I had an opportunity to go. I knew I'd read Vern Johnson's book, mm -hmm. of course, I'll quit tomorrow. He started, um, he's, the first intervention that was ever done was in 64. So it wasn't like it came in with the whole 12-step thing. Yep. And he was an Episcopal minister. Mm -hmm. And he figured he would sit around at all these funerals in a little circle and Everybody would go around and talk about how wonderful the person was. And he thought, why aren't they doing this before? Mm -hmm. So the regiment was is that everybody was involved in the intervention that was in the first two pews at the funeral. You take those people and you put them in an intervention. He did a tremendous amount of corporate interventions on men. He did very, I think he did two or three interventions on women. And he said something <clears throat> to you that stuck out because I'm, I'm. Well, I wanted I I I had gone to the Johnson Institute, mm -hmm. but Byrne wasn't there, and I I stayed for five days out of a seven day course, and it was the preliminary stuff. Um, it was very rigid, and then very soon after that, they sold it to Hazelden. But I heard uh, that he was coming to La Jolla. Mm -hmm. to Scripson that he was only training doctors. Okay. So I have a really good friend, Dr. Bruce Heishoffer, who's an addiction doctor, and he was forced with these other three doctors and two chaplains and to, you know, to do intervention training. And so I, they said, we'll pay, because it was expensive, I think it was mm -hmm. five grand or something, mm -hmm. for this five-day seminar... And we'll play golf in the afternoon, and you take notes. And, of course, three out of the five made better grades than I did. But, but you know, I had to be Dr. Finnegan. And he'd say that, and I would just go, oh, somebody's here with my name. <laughs> and I'd go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I just, you know, it was difficult to go through a process like that and be lying. So, um, but I think what I got out of it more than anything, he was, an old, he was older by that time. And he was fascinated how it had been um, kind of bastardized. I mean, he just said, this isn't what... This is not what I had planned for. I'm glad people are intervening, but this isn't what it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And he said, and in front of everybody, he looked at me and he said, the only person that has that gift is this woman right here, Dr. Finnegan. And I went, oh, I have to tell you something, Dr. John. I'm not a doctor. He goes, I know you're not a doctor, so just leave it there. And, um, but he said, this is a spiritual connection. How do you think you can walk in somebody's life, in their family, in their home, and ask them to tell every secret that is so horrifying to this family, and there's a person in the middle who's dying of a terminal disease, if you're not going in there with somebody more powerful than you? And of course, these doctors went, well, who would that be? You know, And I went, ding, of course. How can I do this work if I don't believe that I have a gift enough to have a connection? And um, so I said to him, I said, well, what if people are really religious and they say they've been praying and, you know, and that, you know, God has let them down and all that. And he goes, that's a wonderful thing if they have a religion and they have a God, but you have to tell them that he sent you. And I thought, oh, well, okay then. I'm getting better. Um, and if love could conquer, we wouldn't have anything. So I, and that's the most I got out of five days. I mean, I got all the preliminaries and all that, but, and I, I went home and told my husband, I said, oh my God, intervention's a spiritual connection. And he goes, you're right, you know, but don't tell anybody. It's like, you know, trying to explain AA that it isn't a religion, it's a spiritual. Mm-hmm. And so he just, just keep your mouth shut. And I went, well, that's not fun. Mm-mm. I need to point out to all these people how wrong they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And um, then I worked, went to work for a bunch of places that, and with a couple of male interventionists who uh, refused to uh, recognize that a woman could be an interventionist. One guy slammed his fist on the desk and goes, whenever I see you, the circus is in town. And I said, I'm the ringmaster, you fool. So come on in. <laughs> Or you can go over there and play with the lions, but I, you know. What do you think that's about? Why, why not a, a massage? Woman? It's, uh, this is a good old boy, really a good old boy business. But what is it about a woman coming in and doing an intervention that would be wrong? Well, how can a woman tell a man what to do? Oh, okay. Um, and my best work is usually done with men mm-hmm. because they kind of like their moms. Mm-hmm. And I'd go, I'm not your mother, and I'm going to tell you how the fuck it is, so mm-hmm. sit down. You know, mm-hmm. oh, this older woman says uh-huh. the F word. Uh-huh. Um, but because I'm not going to take any guff. I am not a tough person. I'm just a big, huge sponge. But I know if I had, and that's what, what Dr. Johnson said. He said, you got one shot at this. This is not going to be a repeat performance. Performance was performance. an interesting way. He said, so go in there and don't let them talk you out of it so I had every I mean I had my just I had my game down I'm a, I'm a, I'm Irish um I kissed the Blarney Stone I can go at yeah mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And um, it seemed an easier, softer way um, than going in there and threatening somebody. Is there enough shame and blame in our disease? And But that isn't how men back in, you know, early 90s did it. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your this. You're going to lose your that. And I thought, how about how about you're going to keep all this? And um, I did a few entertainment um, music business interventions. And it was difficult because all of it was so accepted. You know, radio station DJs and stuff. And they had drawers full of blowing. I couldn't change them, but they could change their life, but I doubt they could have gone back to do the same thing. So it was life. It was suddenly I was so invested in it that, um, and I forgot you could make money at it. And that's still one of my problems. Um, but do you do an intervention and save a family or do you have to have, you know, a whole lot of money coming in and I, I you know I don't take kickbacks I don't do patient brokering I don't do heads and beds and if you can pay 500 bucks and you can pass a hat around and you just give me a hundred dollars I will do equally the same job I really charge more if I don't like you that's when I charge a lot the biggest people I've had I probably charged them thirty two hundred dollars because I'm not going to be one that takes advantage of somebody that's not at their best and you know families are destroyed by this disease okay so that leads me to you brought interventions into people's living rooms and i heard you say one time you said you were shocked when you heard that people that were actively using oh were watching it 80 percent. i was one of those 80 yeah. percent. so and i had done this treatment in 92 or 3 I didn't think I ever kept a copy, but I left it at two reality show producers because there was, you know, Mark Bennett, who mm -hmm. was, you know, and then there was this other guy whose name was Jonathan Lafort, and he was a reality. They, you know, all the housewives and all that all stuff right. hadn't come in. And um, they thought that I had lost my mind. There's, we're going to intervene on a drug addict and we're going to know who the dealer is and they're going to use in front how are you getting these people so i left the treatment with one of them and i to this day know the guy that you know created the show had picked it up it was just down the line and after i i i finally had the nerve to show him the treatment and i go so you use this and he goes where'd you get that and i said it's mine see that it's name mine. up there and this uh they had optioned it, but they just couldn't figure it out. So Sam Mettler came into my life, and I loved him. And uh, he'd been kind of a comedy writer, stand-up kind of guy. And uh, he went to A&E and pitched it, and he had a friend who worked at A&E. And um, they assigned him to a production company, and nobody knew anything about And then they had to figure out how they were going to get people to do the show. Which was, I, you know, to this day, I'm still magnified by the situation that, and he hired, he interviewed tons of people, and he hired um, Jeff Von Vonderant, who was basically um, much more comfortable working at Pacific Hills. It was a Christian place. And, and uh, what would they do? Would families write in and ask for the help? They put or? advertisements in papers, oh. very small town papers. 
And um, is someone suffering you know? Let us help. And, um, but it was like, a, it wasn't any, like a half page. Yeah. And um, they got about 30 phone calls the first six weeks. And we did some really horrendous intervention. The first one was a, a, a kid that was gambling and he walked up and cold cocked his mother in the face. And, and um, he's still running around, but he's not allowed in any casino. <laughs> You know, and then you had to find a place mm -hmm. specialized in gambling, gambling addiction, mm -hmm. which there are a couple of fine mm -hmm. ones. So then they had one that was a shopping addiction, and this girl was an actress, and of course, they didn't realize they had to pay her reruns, residuals, and she got out and got a check from, I don't know, ER or something for $35,000, went right down to Neiman. So, you know, it was like, we're not doing a great job. But we got two really special ones, one in White Buffalo, Minnesota, and the other one in Geronimo, Arizona, that were just huge, 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 huge. And um, a lot of um, self-harm, mm -hmm. a lot of sexual abuse. Um, and I knew I could do the same, but I wasn't going to come on national TV and say, oh, so look what your uncle did. I mean, you know, it was right. like, so I had to really be very discreet. It was easy to follow her around because she was very flamboyant. She was a great little singer, and she'd hang out, you know, within all these little clubs, and, and she was living in Texas and moving back to Arizona, and her father was a preacher, and... Um, I mean, you know, certainly blessed her as the devil. and It was a mm. tragic story. And um, so all of a sudden we're starting to get calls from Oprah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, it would have fascinated people. Like, how would you admit that you do all this to a total stranger? And you know, if you're a drunk, you can go in a bar and everybody will know your life story in 20 minutes. I thought that makes sense. Uh huh. But you know, I wasn't sure how they'd handle if somebody was a drug dealer and they were coming over and scoring. And, and then it started being that kids were stealing their grandmothers, you know, you know, and they were dying of cancer. I mean, it was just one thing on top of another. Mm -hmm. And so the only disappointment for me in the show was that they concentrated so much on the addiction and a tiny bit, like I do a pre-intervention for three or four hours and I maybe was on three and a half minutes. Yep. Then you did the intervention and they took out all the stuff. They, they certainly had a decent editing in the beginning. It didn't end up that way, but because um, they started making everything so, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, um, I had no idea what kind of impact it was having. I mean, because I don't, I probably would not have watched that kind of TV. But, you know, they have the before picture and the after picture. And I did tell them, because the show was not going to pay for treatment at all. The treatment centers mm -hmm. were, so it was a cheap, 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 cheap show. <laughs> and I started out being paid cheap, cheap. And they would give you, I was there, um, over 10 years and I got a $300 raise a year. Wow. So I wasn't buying any house. Well, I already had one. But, you know, I mean, it's like, how hard could it be is what I'd hear all the time. And um, I'd go, come on over. Or I had 
huge turnover because people would get so burned out. If you're, if you're filming a meth addict, you're going to be up all night running around. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I just made them so aware of 12-step and you cannot, you know, um, film somebody, sponsor working the steps. And that they really wanted that part of it. And I just go, not going to happen. I said, you know, I'll turn you into the AA police and you'll be sorry. Of course, there isn't one, but... <laughs> I'm going to call World Services up. What a threat. But I didn't let them send to any treatment center that wasn't 12-step based. Mm -hmm. I didn't care if they didn't like it or not. You know, it was the only thing that I knew would work. And uh, then all of a sudden I start thinking, holy shit. I'm, where are these families? We're leaving and they're waving goodbye in the Dodge van and we're off to treatment and it was over. Mm -hmm. Except for maybe an hour and a half of little catch-up things. And I just thought, boy, I'm missing the boat. So graciously, Betty Ford um, and, and uh, Jerry Moe, who's one of my absolute heroes, scholarshiped all the kids from all these things and the family program there because there weren't good family programs. And Dee McGraw and Mary Gordon, which are just wonderful, wonderful therapists, and the show wouldn't pay for it. So very few kids had that opportunity. The ones that did, um, incredibly benefited from it. So, you know, it's uh, now all of a sudden it's TV, you know, and I think, why don't these people know that these people are terminally ill? I mean, it's like you can't make somebody believe something if they, you know, now all of a sudden we're starting to see, oh, that cameraman's brother is heroin addict and mm -hmm. a few things where it became a little bit more real. But, you know, at night I'd go to my room and then I had sequestered all the time because people would recognize me and I, the show was a secret mm -hmm. until it aired and, you know, but they were in the bar talking and it was like, I, I, would, I, I was such a tattletale. I wasn't well liked of any of them because I made them do a really long pre-intervention and needless to say, I didn't go in and drink with them. I didn't even eat with them. I ate in my room. It's like I had to... I could not in any way, shape, or form compromise my values or compromise my commitments to helping people get well. And I can't ask them to believe that. They're getting paid. This is a TV show. So I, I was always complaining. <laughs> always, you know, no hair, no makeup, just, you know, three-day run on beat, you know, and... Uh, you know, I wanted it to say clothes by TJ Maxx and, you know. <laughs> uh, I, makeup by Candy. Yes, no, by Mabel, make, Maybelline, uh, you know. Makeup by, yeah. Here, yeah. yeah. Um, so, because Glam. I almost didn't get hired because I was too old. And I said, uh, you know, five foot nine, big-breasted women does not make an intervention. Mm. It makes a tramp. And I'm not, you're not going to look for this. So, you know, I had a, I, uh. And then I had to start setting all the priorities of what they couldn't do and what they could do and don't embarrass these families because they wanted to get in there and just dig it up. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I, I did set the priorities or for what I would be comfortable doing. Then they started hiring other people and then they wanted diversity. And, and I was fine with all of it, although there were several people that were not real interventionists that they hired on the show. Well. But they didn't last. And then when um, 
they started doing town hall interventions where they did Marietta, um, Georgia, and then they did uh, Pennsylvania, and then they did Las Vegas, and after the Georgia one, I resigned. Uh, I, uh, I really deeply am committed to my life work, and it was not what it used to be. They're having double interventions, and this guy had been up for days. He finally fell asleep, and the show said that he'd overdosed, and they brought the EMT in and all this. And he was just, and I flat out said, he is asleep in his car. But they dragged him out. I mean, it was just like I thought. I called him, I said, get that resignation letter going, buddy. And of course, they called me back and said they'd pay me more, but that wasn't my problem. I did a few more shows, and then I just thought, they can take this wherever they want, but they can't take me. I'm not going with it. And they still have Candy Finnegan marathons. Do my shows, you know, like one every hour for a whole day. I get no residuals. I get, I get nothing other than somebody going, hi, you're the drug lady. <laughs> so Well, I do have to say, I, I think seeing that it, it woke the nation up to a conversation that I don't think would have been had otherwise. I, I think that that show did, and it was just in time for this epidemic. Epidemic. And I think that, you know, people did turn on and maybe see if that was their favorite interventionist, and then they sit there and flip through it and not go through this. They get the beginning story, and then they'd see if they got sober, and they would see they everyone loved the before and after they do and i and i think but i with but that was the, the hope yeah and with even with the bad but i think it it's sort of like oh gosh there there is hope i, I think that it's not all this war story because that you know it didn't have to get that bad for everybody it didn't get that bad for you with the booze underneath the sink obviously and you're oh well it, i you certainly know, drank a lot but it was like it, I wasn't too much of a control freak. The sad thing about it is, the A&E put a list of all the treatment centers, and some of them stayed good and some of them didn't. Mm -hmm. But you know how few people, at this time it was no insurance. That's right. And people couldn't afford to go to treatment. That's so right. I was referring to Salvation Army like crazy and Claire, and, mm -hmm. but you know, that isn't like that. And then I would go and speak in different, West Virginia had this phenomenal, Wellings, West Virginia, had the most amazing free treatment for nine months. That was like, a, and it was a 12 month, you worked a step a month. And at the end of it, you had a job and a life, and it was phenomenal. And it was a boy and girl thing, and they stayed in these huge, non-insulated dorms, bunk beds. But boy, the people that walked out of there were so solid. And um, I, so I started finding all these communities, and I would go, you know, um, fundraisers for them, and, and uh, people would pay to have their pictures taken with me, and it would tickle me. I'd just think, what are you going to do with this, honey? What are you going to do with this autograph? What you, if I'm signing a check, I just, it tickled me because I'm not that person. You know, I just never was. And so I had so many people ask me if I could help them, and... Um, Mike had a really good friend who had been a wonderful uh, agent in New York, and he had just started a um, Trident, which was movies, TV, and publishing. And I called him, and he said, come to New York, and we'll talk. And I went, okay, I'll come. To I mean, you know, it's kind mm -hmm. of a big business deal. And uh, 
he had just gotten sober. And um, so I wrote the book, and I wrote it with my brother-in-law, and uh, it was 411 pages. And as you can see, as you can see, when, you know, they edited it, they took about (laughs) 300 pages off of it. And um, it was a trying time, you know. It... um, I wanted people to know that you don't have to pay to help a family member. You have to get organized. And um, because I, when I was working at MAP, I never got a paid a penny. And, but I was organized. I knew where I was going to take them. I had everybody. And, you know, letters, when you've done interventions as much as I did, you say to them, what did you hear from all those letters? Nothing, Nothing but the bad. Mm-hmm, of course. So I created statements. Mm-hmm. And so everybody has a statement. And the last one is, if you choose not to go into recovery today, there'll be consequences for your decision. There has to be consequences. Mm-hmm. They have to know them. And so that's, you know, and so that's the Finnegan model, although, trust me, I'm not, I'm not going out teaching and getting your little three-day credentials from me. But I just thought, what would make an impact? And I would have addicts say to me, so what are my consequences? If I don't go, what's going to happen? I went, okay, we're going to put that in. And um, this is for a lifetime commitment. This isn't for a TV show. I always said that you know, off screen. But that's how and enough and enough. And it's, you know, I have a friend whose um, son is uh, about five years ago was in Harvard Medical School, and they were using it as a text. And I thought... Boy, if my I made if it. those nuns could see me now, I made it. Yeah, because it it I I said don't buy this book with you think it's going to be some trash in there. I mean, you know, I'm not talking about rock stars that I intervened on. I gave a few examples because I, I didn't know who they were. Yeah, but well, yeah, that's true too. But <laughs> I just said this is a condensed guide, so you're not so fearful. And Pierce uses it and. Uh, but, you know, it's like, as I've said to everybody, intervention should not be taught at a KDEX school because you're going to have a whole bunch of people that think that's the only way they can make money. Speaking of making money and doing interventions, you actually do, still do oh, interventions. absolutely. You did one last night. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And um, I think because, just like everything else, the world stopped for two years, and I did a lot of emergency placement, Mm -hmm. as you well know. Mm -hmm. You certainly took your few. But it's like you couldn't do things in person. I did one um, in a park. And, I mean, all you had to do was get on this motorcycle and leave. It wasn't a Mm -hmm. condensed situation. But the intervention stopped, you know. And, I mean, to do it right. And what was the prerequisite to get into a treatment center was just horrible. Mm -hmm. So... It, the world stopped, and I kind of got into a different genre, and that's when I started thinking, okay, what is my love? My love is family, so I want to do family programs, and I can do them on Zoom because they're all over the country, and I worked for um, um, another treatment center for a while, and I just and then I, that, I hit that wall. So I just go, nah, need to keep looking. <laughs> and then I came down and talked to you and asked you if... Uh, I could do your family program because I am about women in recovery. That I mean, the old joke is guys will pat your ass and women will save it. And that's why, I, I mean, I believe deeply in gender-specific treatment. 
Well, I listen, the way you speak to families, I remember um, you're really involved with One Recovery. Yes. Oh, and yes. Oh, my God. Yes, my well, heart. I remember the... I'd heard you speak before, but I remember I was sitting really close to you, and I could see it in your eyes talking to those families, and you were not kidding, and I think it was the kids were there. That is, you're speaking directly to them. They can't help but hear you. Well, I, you know, it, I have a face which has given me a voice, that makes it some kind of an odd expert, which I am not. Well, what comes but out of But I'm mouth? just uh, saying, I, I'm the one that can't go in and lie. <laughs> Everybody else can lie to me, and I'll accept it. But Lynn Peterson is this amazing woman that cares deeply about teenagers, and I hope you'll have her on your yep, podcast because uh, uh, she sure. is sold a multi-million dollar house and started one and yep. it's one in recovery you could be recovering from your parents you yep. could be recovering from being bullied mm -hmm. but it's an exchange um suspension program yep. in a lot of high schools down here and it it's saving kids fannies because you can't be suspended five times and get into a good college nope they're nope. erased off your record after yep. eight times. She is a genius. She set up a lot of wonderful adolescent programs. Well, Candy. Yeah. It's, uh, and thank you so much for trusting me. Well, I just admire you and respect you. And just it's an honor that you drove all the way down here. And well, I all you do, it. All you do. And thank you so but much. But you have to realize. I'm the director of family services at Casa Capri. You are the director of family <laughs> services at Casa Capri. Thank that's, you. That, that's my title, that when they go, who are you? And I go, I am. Well, thank And you. I can't thank you enough for the wonderful treatment you have and uh, all the wonderful clinicians you have. And then there's Chris. And, <laughs> and there's he's, Chris. A, he's our token male. He's our token male. And he's wonderful, and he has such good energy. And um, thank you for never saying no to me. I mean, I've asked you for some favors for some people that were desperate. Hasn't always worked out. Hasn't always but worked out. But we, we always try. have to give everybody a chance, and you've done that for me. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.